Welcome to Encounter Grace, where we come face-to-face with God's work in the world for our good. Join host Jason McKnight as we explore practical issues of community, theology, and leadership in everyday life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back uh, to part two of our um, deep dive into God's sovereignty in our salvation, predestination, election, all this kind of stuff. Uh, we have here Ben, and I'm Jason. We almost used assumed names just in <laughs> case people are throwing tomatoes. I don't know. Uh, but yesterday, or yesterday, or whenever you last listened, I wonder how long people take to listen between these <laughs> these yeah. two parters. But anyway, previous episode, we set the table for this discussion by defining the terms, and then we gave the biblical foundation for election, predestination, sovereignty, and salvation, and trace them through Scripture, we looked specifically at God's responsibility and our responsibility, and how they relate. God's choice and our choice, and how they relate. So we laid the foundation, we built the house, we got it ready for a showing. Today we're going to invite the home inspector. Oh, no. <laughs> but what gonna... about my crawl space? Oh, no. <laughs> we know a crawl space medic. That's true. Call the Crawl Space Medics. This episode brought to you by... (laughs) No, seriously. I mean, they're great folks. We want to poke and prod this uh, house that we've built and see if it falls down, if there's termites in our doctrines of election, predestination, and God's sovereignty. So, Ben, I've done all the talking up to now. It means you're going to do a bunch of talking next. I'm going to bring up one word we really haven't mentioned at all. Uh, It's this flower that a lot of people think of around the springtime, and it's tulip. I was hoping for bacon. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get to bacon later. Yeah. Uh, tell me, so when people think of um, Calvinism, they sometimes have heard the word tulip, or they maybe can get a few of those. What does this mean? Is this is this God's elect flower? <laughs> yeah, I, I, so I think uh, we <laughs> most of us have heard the acronym tulip before. So perhaps you've heard it uh in passing, and you got a little bit of the information of what they were saying, or maybe you've even done a deep dive into Reformed theology, and you know it, you can recite it, and you even use it quite often. Too often. Yeah. (laughs) Or maybe like so many, you were on the receiving end of Tulip, someone sternly walking to you and walking you through the five points, and you're thinking the whole time, I just didn't ask. I didn't even ask. I just wanted ice cream. <laughs> so whether you have never heard the acronym or you have deep trauma from the time you were beaten <laughs> over the head with it, it's worth talking about pretty briefly. Do tulips have thorns? No, those are roses. Oh, never yeah, mind. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let me give tulip. you what just really fast two things uh, that I think we need to know about tulips. So what it is and then what it was meant to do. Oh, that's a so, good idea. Uh, a quick history, what it is, history of it. So as many of you know, a man, a theologian named John Calvin continued the early church fathers' teaching of election, predestination, and sovereignty into the Reformation. These were guys like Augustine and Aquinas, big names. So the theology that was well-placed in in the history was brought to the forefront again with Calvin, hence it then being called Calvinism, right? Huh. So he's taking what had long been written about and, and fairly understood, and he brings it back to the Reformation. And they are like, hey, this is a great idea you have. Lots of stuff in the Reformation got rediscovered. Yep. <laughs> so Congregational singing. So there's Calvin. And 30 or so years after Calvin's death, a man named Jacobus Arminius objected against Calvin and his followers' teaching. Hmm. His followers would 
so this is uh, Arminius's followers, would eventually produce a document containing five points of disagreement with mainstream Calvinism. Okay, so uh, okay, five points. Great. So about, it's an in-house teaching in the church, yep. or an in-house disagreement in the church. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, okay. So about eight years later, in 1618, there's this really famous synod called the Synod of Dort, where they met to discuss, quote, the divisive controversy, end quote, caused by rise of Arminians. Hmm. So there at the Synod, the Dutch Reformed Church rejected these five points of Arminianism and produced their own five points. That became Tulip, the five points of Calvinism. Um, so that is... Total depravity. T. Unconditional election. U. Limited atonement. Mm-hmm. Irresistible grace. Mm-hmm. And perseverance of the saints. Now, if you just heard that and you dropped everything and ran away, then we'll give you a couple seconds to come back. <laughs> no. <laughs> but here's what's interesting. Tulip was never designed to be an all-encompassing moniker for Calvinism or for Reformed theology. It was never meant to answer every question nor was it meant to be the club for which its proponents can wield. Mm-hmm. So that's what it is. So w- what was it meant for then? It was designed for two things, a response to the opposing viewpoints, hmm. five points. Mm-hmm. So the Arminians came up with five points at the Synod of Dort. They came up with five points to refute those. Mm-hmm. Then second, a bumper sticker, a, yeah, a sign of only the Calvinist position on God's sovereignty and salvation. We're talking about like a small piece, like, I mean, a major piece, but a in, in expanse, a smaller piece of all of theology. Mm-hmm. And we often use this five points to go, this is everything. It's not. Right. It's the bumper sticker, and it can't answer everything, and it can't say everything. But right. that is what TULIP is. And, and actually, like some people who might say, well, gosh, I could never be a Calvinist, but... Of the five points, all of us agree with the T, yeah. total depravity, which doesn't mean we're as evil as we can be. Oh, isn't that just like Calvin? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But it means we can't bridge the gap to God. We have a depravity, a level of moral standing that is unable to come to God on our own. Yeah. That's what the total means, not total in extent throughout all my character, yeah. just total in the separation from God. Yeah, we're not all the, wor- the worst version of us. Right, right. Yep. But we, so, so total depravity is not, hey, you're the worst version of you. Yep. It just means we can't get to God on our own. And you're saying, oh, you mean there's some people out there who say you could kind of get to God on your own? Well, yes, it's called Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism, mm-hmm. where there's some good in us to commend us to God, and some of us can bridge part of the gap on our own. And that thinking was rightly condemned as a heresy. Uh, you know, there is no sort of inner light that kind of leads us there, or an inner goodness. Um, so, we all agree with this idea that we can't get to God on our own, total depravity. We aren't in our churches today Pelagian or semi-Pelagian. We know that's a heresy. We need God to come to us. Okay, well, all of us agree with that, even if you don't like everything else. The other thing, so T, now go all the way to the end of the word P, almost all of us believe in the perseverance of the saints, which is also sometimes known as eternal security 
or assurance of salvation, or the fact that God always finishes what he starts, or John 10, 10, no one can pluck them out of my hand, not even me. Mm -hmm. I can't pluck me out of God's hand. Um, Just like we don't do anything to get ourselves saved, we can't do anything to get ourselves unsaved, the finished work of Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so the, the perseverance of the saints, which is, you know, other terms for it can be eternal security, assurance of salvation. Many of us believers... Uh, hold to that. There's there's some who don't, but so many of us do, and we see that joyfully in Scripture, the finishing well of one who started genuinely. Mm-hmm. So, Tulip, even that little bumper sticker, well, we all get the T, and we all get the uh, perseverance, the P part, and when why are we bringing this up? Well, because the whole thing we've been talking about, episode one and now this one, part one and part two, we're really only talking about you unconditional election. We're just talking about election and sovereignty and predestination. We're not even going to hit the L or the I. So let's keep talking about the U. Um, Ben, did you see that meme recently about bacon? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, seriously. So instead of the five... This is catchier. I mean, the five... I'm a five-strip baconist. (laughs) B-A-C-O-N. Bad people already elected, completely atoned for, overwhelmingly called, never falling away. I mean, it's roughly the same thing. Maybe bad people isn't the best term for total depraved. But I sure like looking at a piece of bacon on my wall than a tulip. Amen. (laughs) All right, so let me ask you this question. Uh, We'll put you on the... You gave me kind of the... You lobbed a question to me. We'll give you a hard one. So uh, I think this is just something that we're always having to wrestle with and... Many people are struggling with. So how does human freedom fit into all of this? Does this mm. not, does God's election, his predestination, his sovereignty, does this not make us robots then? Mm. Or would it not make us have a fated existence? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think I think that's a really, really important question because nobody wants to, uh, knowing how we do life, we don't want to think, what do you mean? There's some puppeteer behind this all, and I don't really have any chance at anything, and and it's all just uh, I'm I'm just stuck. Well, part of it is how you define freedom, and we did talk about this a little bit in part one, but we're, we'll go in a different direction as opposed to the bondage of the will. But but um, right now, some people say freedom is 100% absolute autonomy of the will without any outside pressure to choose an outcome. And some, you know, like, mm-hmm. see, and and I think of it, uh, you are raising Harper, and you know the bath is coming. Like, let's say it's bath time, or it's going to be bath time in half an hour. Yeah. And you know the bath is coming, and you want her to want the bath, because it's a lot more fun when she wants the bath. That's true. <laughs> so what can you do? Well, she's like, let's say she's, I mean, I think she's about 18 months or 15 months or something. Mm-hmm. She's really young, so... So you start, uh, let's say you, you start closing the door to the dining room. So now her, now she's only in the kitchen and then you move, uh, her, her three favorite toys out of her eyesight. And so she forgets about them. Are you being evil? No, no, not yet. (laughs) Not until I get the hose. (laughs) So what you're doing is you're, you're helping her choose. Now, some people say that, um, that, Freedom means absolute autonomy and and a neutral starting point on every choice. And I'm not sure that's what Scripture says. 
And some say that God has intentionally limited his sovereignty or his power over our quote-unquote free will so that we can choose Jesus and salvation. Uh, It'll be that if we do that, it'll be without any external direction from him. Again, based on part one, I don't think at all that's what Scripture teaches, that we can choose him from a neutral standing point because we're dead in our transgressions and there's no one who seeks God, no one, uh, no, not one. I mean, you mentioned those. All of us stand condemned already, John three eighteen. Men love darkness better than light, John 1. I mean, the starting point for us understanding the gospel is not a position of neutrality. It's not like we're all at a starting line in a race. You know, the starting line for us understanding the gospel is a morgue. Mm. We are dead and cold and slabbed, and there is no chance for any of us to come alive on our own. We need a life injection before we can respond. And that's why we need God's choosing his gift of regeneration. He makes us alive in order that we might exercise the faith and the repentance necessary to be saved. So does this make us robots? Does it make us fated? Well, there's not a single text in Scripture that comes close to portraying humans in God's image as robotic or fated or unable. Mm. We make real choices, as we said, with real consequences and real outcomes. And actually, we get back to mystery, how God incorporates our choices in his overall purposes and plans. That's where the mystery comes in. We're above my pay grade. (laughs) But we do make real choices. We uh, are in bondage on the things to do with salvation because we cannot bridge the gap. We do believe in total depravity. We can't make it to God on our own. But thankfully, God draws us. God shows us that he draws us. Mm. So that's that's maybe the beginning or the continuation of your good in part one, continuation. Okay, where does freedom fit in and are we yeah, just yeah. robots and, and so on. Um, ben, there's another thing we have to revisit from part one is, and we, we skated over it on purpose because I knew you'd give us a better answer than I could. Uh, <laughs> the word foreknow, uh, those God foreknows, he also predestines. Um what does that mean? T- tell us, help us understand yeah. for no, because if it's just, he sees the choice I'm going to make, which a lot of people think, is that what the Greek word is saying? So, uh, this idea comes from Romans eight twenty nine, right? And so here Paul writes this, he says, for those whom he foreknew, that's the word we're going to look at. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. All right, so uh, this is a, a, an Arminian viewpoint, right? Uh, that And so their big idea was that God looked into the future at your faith, at your choices, and most importantly, that you would choose God. And then God makes you elect. Mm. So I, he writes your name in the book of life because he looked forward and saw that you would live a, you, that you were going to be faithful, you were going to have faith and you would choose God. So they base this here on this Romans eight twenty nine on the word for new. They look at it as a for knowledge. So the Greek word here for new is the word prognosko if any of you are big Greek scholars or care, which comes from the word gnosko, which just simply means I know. Mm. So Armenians believe that this word 
was referring to God having a knowledge of future events. The key here is knowledge and future events, mostly even knowledge. In other words, a knowledge that comes before anything has happened. Mm. Okay. The problem with that is that the word prognosco is not in reference to an, is in is not in reference to knowledge at all, but an actual act of knowing. There's a difference mm. between knowledge and knowing. We like we actually pun intended, know this because when you want to get to know your spouse or know your children, or when you get to just know the stranger, it may start off on some facts. Hey, they're this tall. They go to this school. They do. But to actually get to know them, it takes relationship. It takes getting to like actually knowing Mm -hmm. who they are, like a Mm -hmm. deep uh, knowing of a person. So, This isn't some flippant idea of knowing. This is deep, complete, and a holistic knowing of a person, like an intimate knowing of them. So the exact same idea, uh, this word is actually used in the Old Testament uh, Mm. in the same way. And how that works is a little confusing, but we'll just say it's the same word in Amos 3 and 1 to 2. He says... Uh, Amos says, hear this word the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Here it is. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Here God references his deep personal knowledge of Israel. He knows what they've done. He knows their hearts. He's walked with them. Mm-hmm. He's been beside them. He led them out of it or out of uh, Egypt. Right? Like he he knows them. Because when God talks about knowing His people, He always means a deep personal knowledge. He doesn't mm-hmm. just mean I have a knowledge of you. No, no, no. I know my people. I actually think the best evidence of this is just one that we mentioned in the last podcast, which was 1 Peter 1, 19 to 20. And so what this is going to do is it kind of strips out all the engine on the, uh, that God, like uh, this as knowledge, as a looking into the future to see a knowledge, because this is about Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so as we talk, he says this, 19 says, it's kind of a, just to make sure you know it's about Jesus, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We're talking about Jesus. He says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times of the, for the sake of you. Because Jesus wasn't, he didn't, he wasn't the father looking, going, I know the decisions you're going to make. And I know you'll choose me. I know you'll be obedient. So I will make the, the mm-hmm. second part of me, the Trinity elect, Right. What he's saying, he's like, no, I know you. Talking about a level of intimacy that mm. is of divine proportions here. Like Jesus is known, not looked ahead, but known. Because he's a part of the Trinity. Like it's amazing. Mm. No, that's good. Um, Ben, I'm gonna actually lob another one at you because you only did, you know, super well on that question. Hopefully. <laughs> well. There and and this is this is a term that's never used in scripture and it's really not used by um folks who are reformed it's used by detractors but people say well aha let's follow this through logically what does this does this mean there's double predestination or or what does this mean uh and then you know the doctrine of of uh, i mean really what happens if god's choosing some isn't he choosing others 
Yeah, so uh, if you have a pitchfork, this is your time. Uh, I'm just kidding. Okay, so double predestination is ultimately saying that if God chooses to save people, he's choosing to de- to uh, damn others, right? Mm-hmm. So if he's choosing uh, his elect to go to heaven and to spend eternity with him in the new heavens, the new earth, then he is choosing who will be reprobates, right? Is the mm-hmm. technical, it's a mm-hmm. fairly technical term, uh, and will spend eternity mm-hmm. away from him. Uh, there are, interestingly enough, people who hold Reformed theology, hardcore Calvinists, who are on both sides, who will mm. disagree with double predestination, and some do agree. Uh, my take on it is this if God is omnipotent, so all powerful, and is omniscient, all knowing, and he is ultimately infallible, so unable of mistakes, then when that God, the all-powerful, all-knowing, unable to make mistakes God, when he makes a choice, it is deliberate and mm. it's total. Mm. So what that means is this. For us, we are none of those things. Mm. When we make a choice, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a choice against the, uh, the opposite side. Because we may not even know that that was a choice. Does that make sense? Like, mm-hmm. I may choose the car, but it doesn't mean that I'm not choosing every other car because I actually don't know every other. I haven't been right. inside it. Right. And they may be outside of my price range, and there's all these other stipulations, right? Mm-hmm. But when God makes a, a total decision, it's because God has the ability to render any outcome he wants. Mm-hmm. He has knowledge, he has the power, and he has the ability. And so... God is not limited by time, space, or anything. Mm-hmm. Therefore, when God chooses, it is a deliberate choice not to choose others. At least that's where I stand. And like when, um, whenever I remember someone saying this, when you preach Revelation 20, where it says about the lake of fire, yeah. you have to preach it with tears. Yep. I mean, I mean, this is not this, this, what we're dancing with here and what you've, answered so well, I think, uh, is not something, you know, to, to make a meme out of and laugh at. I mean, this is just, just serious and, and careful and reverent and it's difficult. So. I don't think anyone will accuse me of this, but just to say it, like, no, you weren't, you weren't, well, making... and to just, if I was speaking, uh, I was trying to speak with just purely clarity, mm-hmm. uh, and to be helpful. But again, like you're absolutely right. When we speak of this, this is not something that we just go. So ha ha, like, mm-hmm. or, or we never make assumptions. Yeah, yeah. Because this is not our choice. This is not our decision. Like whether you're the elect and you get to celebrate that, but it's a celebration of not you, but of what the Lord's done. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, right. And yeah. we are speculating. Like this is this yeah. is into, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little later, into things that are beyond us. And, and that's okay because Scripture yep. doesn't focus on this. And we'll always focus on what Scripture focuses on. And I think because we were talking about this not too long ago, again, like, one of my thoughts that I've had, and I, I was just, anyways, one of the thoughts that I've had is why isn't Scripture talk more about this? Because, hmm. like, if reprobation is such a thing, you should talk about it, right? But it, then I was reading, it was this really helpful idea that I've just latched onto, and it's because Scripture was never meant for them. It was meant to be a celebration of what God has done for his people. Hmm. And so it's thinking for, I mean, all things pertaining to what? Life and godliness. And it's focused on those things mm-hmm. and on those people. Mm-hmm. Well, um, then someone might bring the charge, Ben. 
how can I be responsible for my own sin if God has ordained me for wrath? Yeah. So what do you say to that? How can we just keep going bouncing on, on a man? I feel like if I just keep asking the questions, I'm going to be fine. <laughs> uh, okay, so, what, so ask the question again. Like someone could say, well, how can I be responsible for sin if God's ordained me for wrath? Yeah, I'm going to answer this in a couple different ways uh, and try to skip the way Paul somewhat answers it because I know you're going to it's answer it. coming something. up next, yeah. yeah. Uh, so something to keep in mind, and this will be a leap for some people, I think, but I think it's a helpful leap if you're willing to think about it. God is all, we actually just talked about this with our church podcast. God is always, uh, like he's always connected to his people through covenants, right? Mm-hmm. He's always related to his people through covenants. And so here's what's interesting is covenants always require three things, mm-hmm. a promise, which is often a blessing. One of the most famous ones that we all know will be, I will be your God and you shall be my people. That's a promise. That's a blessing. There's, there's a mediator in scripture. It's always God. Even in the law, it's the, uh, it's the priests and the Mosaic law in place of God. Right. Mm-hmm. So a promise, a mediator. And then the third one is a required response. So, as we're talking about election, election is a part of a co- is is in terms a covenant with the people that He's chosen. It is a blessing. It is a promise, because God's covenants, His uh, His redemptive covenants, are always one sided. Mm-hmm. He's not mm-hmm. saying, "Hey, if you'll do this, I'll then then I'll do this for you." No, He goes, "Hey, I'm going to do this." And then there are certain responses, required responses, it takes to open up that that joy, that treasure, that to, to, uh, I mean, like we've talked about this, uh, in a, like through Romans of you have the check, like, right. If, and then you have to, you have to take it to the bank to cash it in. Right. Like there's a required response to, to get the inheritance. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So what that means is there's at least two things. There's God's sovereignty. So his divine promises and his fulfillment of those, and then human responsibility. Mm-hmm. So, a required response, human obligations. The other thing to remember is that there's a difference between ordaining the outcome of every decision, and it's very different than ordaining the outcome of eternity. Right? Right. So what we need to remember when we're thinking of if if he's responsible for eternity and my salvation, then why am I responsible for my day-to-day? Well, again, there's a difference. God mm-hmm. ordains the end. He doesn't ordain every step you take to get there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. We make real choices. Yep. Like it's our decision to steal that, to do that, to look at that. And scripture always holds us accountable for our sins, but it always gives credit to God for salvation. It's true. And, and it's kind of like, you know, Harper is going to get in the bath but she can go through the family room. She can go through the living room. She can go in your arms. She can crawl on her own. Like it just all depends on how she responds. Yeah. But but the bath is coming, and so she's responsible for her choices, even though the the outcome is coming. So I'm, good. I'm curious for you. Like, do you think this means that God then is unjust? Yeah, that's a good question because that's I think that's what's going through has gone through my mind at times. Yeah. And. Um, and, and I wonder if that goes through a lot of people's minds, uh-oh, 
when I press into this for too long, my mind starts to hurt. <laughs> and if God, if God really is choosing some to be saved before they're born from the foundation of the world, and it means yes, then obviously because God's sovereign and and omnipotent and omniscient, then it means a choice for some to be lost. I mean, it just gives me heartburn. Mm. Um, so is God unjust? Well, that's exactly what response we should have if we rightly understand the biblical doctrine of election. Because it means that what has sunk in is that God does choose, and we're left in our finite minds trying to grapple with it. And as Paul outlines in Romans 9, with clarity and force, this doctrine of election, this is the exact objection that comes up. We mentioned it in part one, but it's true again, and he's anticipating our thoughts. Is God then unjust? And beginning in verse 19, (laughs) this is what he says. I mean, he has his imaginary interlocutor, uh, his, his imaginary discussion partner, debate partner, well, why does God still blame us? Someone will say to me, who resists his will? And that's exactly this. Like, wait, mm-hmm. God's, uh, God's unjust. How am I blameworthy? Who can resist his will? And I just love and rest in Paul's response. Hang on a second. <laughs> I think that's what he said. Hang on a second. Who are you, oh man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Hey, why'd you make me like this? Doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purpose and some for common use? And he's quoting Jeremiah 18. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, the answer is yes, God has that right to make some pottery as this and some pottery as that from the same lump of clay. He can do what he wishes with all of creation. We're wholly contingent on him. So... Our question of justice, listen, his justice is always going to be vindicated. He's always Mm -hmm. going to be proven to have been in the right all the way along. And you know what, Ben? We might not be able to see it clearly until we're in eternity, but he is always just, always good, always right. And it's hard, if it is hard, to accept with my mind Maybe I accept it by faith because Scripture teaches it. Hmm. There's a bunch of things we accept by faith because Scripture teaches and we don't get with our mind. Like, we do not get the incarnation, how Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. We don't get the Trinity, how God is one and three. We don't get how Scripture is fully the work of man and fully the work of God. So we, we do have to receive a lot of things by faith in Scripture. So, too, this idea of God choosing and me choosing, and is God unjust in that? These are more questions that, well, let me simply hew to what Scripture teaches, even if my mind hasn't caught up. Yeah. And it might catch up in eternity. Yeah. <laughs> might might be a long way into eternity for my mind. <laughs> um, I, so, if God seems unjust, hang on. Yeah. Trust what Scripture says, and... And trust him to lead you deeper, and it may not be till eternity till we fully get it. Yeah, he doesn't ask us to 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 worship him blindly and shut up and don't ask. No, he says keep asking, keep probing with hearts. Yeah, you know he, Hebrews eleven six. Believe that he's there and he wants to help. Yeah. He, he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Well, Ben, here's a question 
then over to you from our mounds of listener mail that came in <laughs> in the in the four minutes between part one and part two yeah. that we recorded. Uh, what does this mean for evangelism? What does it mean for missions? Because the big uh, one of the big um, detractors is, well, if God's faded everyone or if God's chosen everyone, not faded, but chosen, we don't have to do anything. Yeah, I mean, I was just talking with somebody, and that was... Because uh, I got a new Lazy Boy. I'm really happy to use it. <laughs> I literally was just talking to somebody last week, and that this was their... I was telling them about this podcast, and they're like, well, certainly mm-hmm. you can't... Because I care about missions, and he, mm-hmm. like that side just doesn't, because that's all I've heard. And it's like, okay, well, let's talk about that. So well, what if God is sovereign, if, if, if election and predestination are real, then what does that mean for evangelism? Yeah, what does it mean right. for missions? Do we go... Okay, I always uh, like to toss this out to people, and we're not always sure what to do with it, but it's just helpful. So the biggest proponent in Scripture of predestination is also the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. It's Paul. So we're about to hit there, and this is one of the most powerful little sections of Scripture, I think, and it's Romans uh, 9, 10, and 11. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Yeah. Romans 9, we get this, uh, I mean, tome, I guess, on God's election, like how how he's working through that. Okay. And then 11 is this, uh, starts with this great question, has God rejected his people? And is he going to come out to, like, but then right there in the middle is this God's, is God's message of salvation. Mm-hmm. This idea that for even though God's elect, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because how? Because through the elect, God is going out. He's ma- He's preaching the gospel. He's making yeah. the word known. Like, I mean, I remember we, you were talking about this not too long ago. Like, for for Paul, there is no daylight between election and event and evangelism. Yeah, no. Like, they go together, and so this is. In my opinion, election is not the reason why you shouldn't go. It's the hope and the reason why you should go and can go and go in confidence because it's the, I, I'm convinced it's the reason why Paul could write in such assurance and go in such confidence because he's going to countries he's never been to in languages he probably didn't really know in cultures he didn't understand and he's going to go convince them of the gospel, but he has a confidence. He goes with a confidence and assurance that he's not going to manufacture Christians. He's going to collect the ones that God has in those communities. Yeah, And it may not be him who collects them, but he may sow the seed. He may till the dirt. He may water the the plant a little bit, but that one day that's going to be harvested and he can Mm -hmm. know that in assurance. So, I love that. What does this mean for evangelism? It means you have a reason to go and you have the confidence for why you can, why you can share your faith, why you should share your faith, why you should go on that mission trip, why you should serve in a community where you see that very little hope. It's why you can, because God brings hope mm-hmm. because he goes, I don't, I've gone before you and is assured. Yeah, that's so good. I've gone before you and it's assured. I mean, and it's First Thessalonians 1, verse yeah. 5, like we said at the beginning, like, uh, we know he chose you because you responded. Hallelujah. Uh, amen. He gets the glory. You have to respond, but he gets the glory. So there's often a great, uh, like, issue with kind of, we can make an issue of this, of if God's elect, then 
that changes the way we act, right? Because, well, if God's elect and he elects everybody, then we don't, that's the answer we just, that's the question we're just answering. So the one I've got for you then is more kind of closer to home in a way. So it's how we act personally. Like, what does this mean for our holiness? Yeah, no, that's good. Because then if God's elected me, then, hey. Well, I, it doesn't matter what I do, right? I, yeah. Well, and what what do we <laughs> see in Scripture? That's all we have to do. Yeah. I mean, that's it. I mean, it's just, it's only the detractors that would say, yeah, if you're elected, you don't have to change your lifestyle. No, it's the evidence of a converted life. Mm. Uh, uh, the, the converted life is the evidence of your conversion. Yeah. You you come to Jesus. If Jesus has really changed your life, he's changing your life. So yeah. hallelujah. Amen. So hallelujah. It's the same for everyone. We are supposed to grow in holiness, and that's a great thing. Um, I do know that we talked uh, of those couple of verses where it says, so then if God is choosing for salvation instead of just leaving it up to us, there's a couple of verses that, that make it hard on that one. Yeah. Second uh, Peter 3, verse 9, where it says that God doesn't wish that any should perish. Or First Timothy 2, verse 4, where God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And these mm-hmm. are real uh, verses, and they're yeah. really in there. So how do we understand these, or how can we relate them? And never forget that we always have to interpret Scripture by Scripture. You know, it's the rule of faith. Like, we never just take one verse and run off. Like, we, if there was only one verse on, on God predestining or electing— you know, you wouldn't be doing two podcasts on it, Yeah, <laughs> but it's everywhere. So how do we fit these two verses into uh, properly so that we don't violate what they're saying? What are they saying? Well, I think the best way to to line these two verses up, and, and again, things like maybe Ezekiel 33, God says he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, which mm-hmm. which is exactly in line with not wishing any should perish, God desires all men to be saved, Second Peter 3, mm-hmm. 1 Timothy 4. How do we handle this? Okay. Friends, here it is. There's a, there's, the idea is that there's a, an unknown and a known will of God. There's a, uh, unrevealed and a revealed or a secret will and a revealed will. And, and when we say secret will, it's not that he's trying to obscure things, but maybe rather that it's beyond our understanding. We just can't get it. So it remains secret or unknown to us. Of course, this follows if there's an infinite God yeah. and we're finite creatures and we're fallen. Uh, he would have thought processes or purposes or plans that are beyond us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed are for us and our children. There's two levels of things of God's knowledge. That which is beyond us, which belongs to him, and that which is revealed to us. So the revealed will of God, the level of his purposes and plans that he invites us to know and behold and live into, I mean, when he instructs us to do something, that's his revealed will. When he gives the world the Ten Commandments, that's his revealed will. He wants us to obey those commandments. Do everybody? Do you? I mean, we, we've not, you know, oh, wait a minute, there's his revealed will that he wants us to obey, but we don't all do them. Okay, when you pray, your will be done on earth as in heaven. We're praying for people to obey God's revealed will. Why are we praying for it? Because it doesn't always happen. So, okay, so when God says, I will for all to be saved or a desire that none should perish, well, that's part of his revealed will where he gives us insight into what he wants, but it doesn't always happen. These instructions for our flourishing, 
that he graciously reveals, he wishes that everyone would do it. He wants everyone to do it. And and really, the the biggest way you have a life of flourishing is to believe on him whom God sent. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's what Jesus says in John 5. So the hidden will of God, the decrees from eternity past that he's put into place, the revealed will of God, the instructions and the story that God's given us to know, well, the secret things, the revealed things, what God's given us to know. So, you know, when he says things like, I desire all men to be, oh, that's clearly, that's part of his revealed will. This is what he wants. Just like he says, thou shalt not kill. Yeah. Well, that's what ought to happen, but it doesn't always happen yeah. that way. So his revealed will, there's a little bit. And I realize we're dancing on the edges of human understanding here and on mystery when we're talking about secret will or earlier from the foundation of the world yeah, and yeah. mystery. But it's okay. The longer I walk with the Lord, the more he invites me both to probe and to sink deeper into his mysterious character and then to throw my hands up with Paul at the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Yeah, amen. Unscrutable are his ways. How many more questions do we have, Ben? Is this well, it, or do we? I think we're, I think we're almost at the point of where we just wrap this bad boy up and go. Well, Jason, what does this mean for us? Well, one thing it means is that when people think of God choosing, I think the next thing someone can think is, well, wait, how many is He going to choose? Hmm. We did touch on it earlier, but. That's right. How many are going to be in heaven? Listen, those are two separate questions, but here's what we know. (laughs) Even though I can look around and think how bad things are and draw the conclusion that, well, obviously more are doomed than saved because look at how disastrous this life is. Uh, But listen, God is doing more than we know. And, And I don't know how many are going to be in heaven. But scripture always talks of a throng of multitudes no one can count. In the parables, my house will be full. Um, Adam, uh, Adam, Romans 5 is all about Adam's sin is so much less than Christ's righteousness. Mm. Christ's righteousness, how much more the effects. Listen, if Adam's sin caused the destruction of this whole world, Christ's redemption is not going to save 368 people. It's going to be immense and ginormous. So even though you say, wait, God is choosing. Well, what if he's choosing unbelievably more people than you and I can imagine? I I don't think he's got a thimble full of saving grace. (laughs) I just think it's It's go and go and go. We just don't know how many people. So thanks be to God for his grace and his beauty. Now, what it means for me and you gives me assurance because there's days I don't feel worthy of God, a lot of days, a lot of moments in my home, in my workplace, and so on that I don't feel. But this reminds me that it's not all on me. God has saved me. It is the impetus for holiness because mm. I want to be more like him. It gives me great humility. Why me, Lord? And then it just that just draws me to fall on my knees that God would set his love on me. As you said, it gives me great confidence in evangelism. Amen. And then lastly, it gives me great hope in suffering. The more God has the power, the more hope I have in all things, even in the darkest moments. Because if he's not powerful over my salvation, over how I choose, and he's not powerful over how that jerk in my life is is destroying things for me. But if God is powerful, then I can rest in his mystery and his goodness, even though I don't get it. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know. That that seems to be some of the implications, the assurance, the holiness, the humility, the confidence in evangelism and missions, and then the hope in suffering that flow out of election for me and have given me great joy and hope in life. I just love uh, one of the thoughts. I mean, you said it in the last podcast, I believe, and maybe even this one, but that you or I cannot have a more gracious thought than God. We will not be able, while holding the scriptures, many truths and verses and difficulties hmm. and, and even the apparent paradoxes, we will not be able to outgrace the God of grace. He has a monopoly on that. Amen. I think if we understand that, not all will come to him, but some will and many will. And there's a great hope, confidence, and assurance in all that. Yeah. Amen. You know, thank you so much just for doing this and answering yeah, some of these yeah. questions and then giving me all the hard ones. <laughs> and thank I mean, you all for listening. Yeah. I mean, you know, hopefully you've stuck with us. Maybe not. Maybe this is going to be the the smallest listenership by this point. <laughs> but actually, we'd love to hear from you. Mm. I mean, it has this been helpful? Uh, has it raised more questions? Are you leaning into it? Do you need more tools? I mean, we just want you to love Jesus more, to know God more. So don't be afraid to reach out, and certainly don't be afraid to say Ben was wrong on every count. Amen. <laughs> All right, well, everybody, have a great rest of the day, and we'll join you back here the next time we get together. This is a ministry of Grace Fellowship Church in Kinston, North Carolina. Visit gracekinston.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.